Section 12 of The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Stevens. The Life of Richard Nash, Esquire, Late Master of Ceremonies at Bath, by Oliver Goldsmith. Edited by Peter Cunningham. A musician, in his dedication, still exceeds the other two in adulation. However, though the matter may be some impeachment on his sincerity, the manner in which it is written reflects no disgrace upon his understanding. To Richard Nash, Esquire. Sir, the kind partiality of my friends prevailed with me to present to the world these my first attempts in musical composition and the generous protection you have been pleased to afford me makes it my indispensable duty to lay them at your feet indeed to whom could i presume to offer them but to the great encourager of all polite arts for your generosity knows no bounds nor are you more famed for that dignity of mind which ennobles and gives a grace to every part of your conduct than for that humanity and beneficence which makes you the friend and benefactor of all mankind. To you, the poor and the rich, the diseased and the healthy, the aged and the young, owe every comfort, every conveniency, and every innocent amusement, that the best heart, the most skilful management, and the most accomplished taste can furnish. Even this age, so deeply practised in all the subtleties of refined pleasure, gives you this testimony, even this age, so ardently engaged in all the ways of the most unbounded charity, gives you this praise. Pardon me, then, if, amidst the crowd of votaries, I make my humble offering, if I seize this first opportunity of publicly expressing the grateful sentiments of my own heart and profound respect, with which I am, sir, your most obliged, most devoted, and most obedient servant, J. G., I fancy I have almost fatigued the reader, and I am almost fatigued myself, with the efforts of these elegant panegyrists. However, I cannot finish this run of quotation without giving a specimen of poetry addressed to him upon a certain occasion, and all I shall say in its defence is that those who are pleased with the prose dedications will not dislike the present attempt in poetry. To Richard Nash, Esquire, on his sickness at Tunbridge. Say, must the friend of humankind, of most refined, of most diffusive mind, must Nash himself beneath these ailments grieve? He felt for all, he felt but to relieve, to heal the sick, the wounded to restore, and bid desponding nature mourn no more. Thy quickening warmth, O let thy patron feel, Improve thy springs with double power to heal. Quick, hither, all-inspiring health repair, And save the gay and wretched from despair. Thou only, Ezra's drooping sons, canst cheer, And stop the soft-eyed virgin's trickling tear, In murmurs who their monarch's pains deplore, while sickness faints, and pleasure is no more. O oh, let not death, with hasty strides advance, Thou mildest charity, avert the lance. 
his threatening power celestial maid defeat nor take him with thee to thy well-known seat leave him on earth some longer date behind to bless to polish and relieve mankind come then kind health o oh, quickly come away bid nash revive and all the world be gay such addresses as these were daily offered to our titular king when in the meridian of power scarce a morning passed that did not increase the number of his humble admirers and enlarge the sphere of his vanity the man who is constantly served up with adulation must be a first-rate philosopher if he can listen without contracting new affectations the opinion we form of ourselves is generally measured by what we hear from others and when they conspire to deceive we too readily concur in the delusion among the number of much applauded men in the circle of our own friends we can recollect but few that have heads quite strong enough to bear a loud acclamation of public praise in their favour among the whole list we shall scarce find one that has not thus been made on some side of his character a coxcomb when the best head turns and grows giddy with praise is it to be wondered that poor nash should be driven by it almost into a frenzy of affectation towards the close of life he became affected he chiefly laboured to be thought a sayer of good things and by frequent attempts was now and then successful for he ever lay upon the lurch there never perhaps was a more silly passion than this desire of having a man's jests recorded for this purpose it is necessary to keep ignorant or ill-bred company who are only fond of repeating such stories in the next place a person must tell his own jokes in order to make them more universal but what is worst of all scarcely a joke of this kind succeeds but at the expense of a man's good nature and he who exchanges the character of being thought agreeable for that of being thought witty makes but a very bad bargain the success nash sometimes met with led him on when late in life to mistake his true character he was really agreeable but he chose to be thought a wit he therefore indulged his inclination and never mattered how rude he was provided he was thought comical he thus got the applause he sought for but too often found enemies where he least expected to find them of all the jests recorded of him i scarcely find one that is not marked with petulance he said whatever came uppermost and in the number of his remarks it might naturally be expected that some were worth repeating he threw often and sometimes had a lucky cast footnote for once bid business avaunt and ask us how we do at bath and at your friend graves's we can offer you friendly conversation friendly springs friendly rides and walks friendly pastimes to dissipate gloomy thoughts friendly booksellers who for five shillings for the season will furnish you with all the new books friendly chairmen who will carry you through storms and tempests for sixpence and seldom else for duchesses trudge the streets here unattended we have also friendly othellos falstaffs richard the thirds and harlequins who entertain one daily for half the price of your garricks barrys and riches 
and, what you will scarcely believe, we can also offer you friendly solitude, for one may be an anchoret here, without being disturbed by the question, why? Would you see the fortunate and benevolent Mr. Allen, his fine house and his stone quarries? Would you see our lawgiver, Mr. Nash, whose white hat commands more respect and non-resistance than the crowns of some kings, though now worn on a head that is in the eightieth year of its age? to promote society, good manners, and a coalition of parties and ranks, to suppress scandal and late hours, are his views, and he succeeds rather better than his brother monarchs generally do. Hasten then your steps, for he may soon be carried off the stage of life, as the greatest must fall to the worm's repast. Yet he is new hanging his collection of beauties, so as to have space to hang up as many more future bells." His Apelles is Howard in crayons, his Praxiteles is Howard's brother, who, though a statuary, deigns also to exercise his art in sculpture on humble paper ceilings, which are very handsome. Lady Luxborough, Orange Grove, Bath, February 29, 1752. End of footnote. In a life of almost ninety years, spent in the very point of public view, it is not strange that five or six sprightly things of his have been collected, particularly as he took every opportunity of repeating them himself. His usual way, when he thought he said anything clever, was to strengthen it with an oath, and to make up its want of sentiment by asseveration and grimace. For many years he thus entertained the company at the coffee-house with old stories in which he always made himself the principal character strangers liked this well enough but they who were used to his conversation found it unsupportable one story brought on another and each came in the same order that it had the day preceding but this custom may be rather ascribed to the peculiarity of age than a peculiarity of character it seldom happens that old men allure at least by novelty age that shrivels the body contracts the understanding instead of exploring new regions they rest satisfied in the old and walk round the circle of their former discoveries his manner of telling a story however was not displeasing but few of those he told are worth transcribing indeed it is the manner which places the whole difference between the wit of the vulgar and of those who assume the name of the polite one has in general as much good sense as the other a story transcribed from the one will be as entertaining as that copied from the other, but in conversation the manner will give charms even to stupidity. The following is the story which he most frequently told, and pretty much in these words. Suppose the company to be talking of a German war, or Elizabeth Canning. He would begin thus. I'll tell you something to that purpose that I fancy will make you laugh. A covetous old parson, as rich as the devil, scraped a fresh acquaintance with me several years ago at Bath. I knew him when he and I were students at Oxford, where we both studied damnationly hard, but that's neither here nor there. Well, very well, I entertained him at my house in John's Court. No, my house in John's Court was not built then, but I entertained him with all that the city could afford, the rooms, the music, and everything in the world. 
upon his leaving Bath, he pressed me very hard to return the visit, and desired me to let him have the pleasure of seeing me at his house in Devonshire. About six months after, I happened to be in that neighbourhood, and was resolved to see my old friend, from whom I expected a very warm reception. Well, I knocks at his door, when an old queer creature of a maid came to the door, and denied him. I suspected, however, that he was at home, and going into the parlour, what should I see but the parson's legs up the chimney, where he had thrust himself to avoid entertaining me. This was very well. My dear, says I to the maid, it is very cold, extreme cold indeed, and I am afraid I have got a touch of my ague. Light me the fire, if you please. La, sir, says the maid, who was a modest creature, to be sure, the chimney smokes monstrously. You could not bear the room for three minutes together. By the greatest good luck there was a bundle of straw in the hearth, and I called for a candle. The candle came. Well, good woman, says I, since you won't light me a fire, I'll light one for myself. And in a moment the straw was all in a blaze. This quickly unkenneled the old fox. There he stood, in an old rusty nightgown, blessing himself and looking like a hem egad. He used to tell surprising stories of his activity when young. Here I stand, gentlemen, that could once leap forty-two feet upon level ground, at three standing jumps, backward or forward. One, two, three, dark like an arrow out of a bow. But I am old now. I remember I once leaped for three hundred guineas with Count Klopstock, the great leaper, leaping master to the Prince of Passau. You must all have heard of him. First he began with a running jump, and a most damnable bounce it was, that's certain. Everybody concluded that he had the match hollow, when only taking off my hat, stripping off neither coat, shoes, nor stockings, mind me, I fetches a run, and went beyond him one foot three inches and three quarters, measured upon my soul by Captain Pateley's own standard. But in this torrent of insipidity, there sometimes were found very severe satire, strokes of true wit, and lines of humour, cum fluerent lutulentus, etc. He rallied very successfully, for he never felt another's joke, and drove home his own without pity. With his superiors he was familiar and blunt. The inferiority of his station secured him from their resentment. But the same bluntness which they laughed at was by his equals regarded as insolence, something like a familiar boot-catcher at an inn. A gentleman would bear that joke from him, for which a brother boot-catcher would knock him down. Among other stories of Nash's telling, I remember one which I the more cheerfully repeat, as it tends to correct a piece of impertinence that reigns in almost every country assembly. The principal inhabitants of a certain market-town, at a distance from the capital, in order to encourage that harmony which ought to subsist in society, and to promote a mutual intercourse between the sexes, so desirable to both, and so necessary for all, had established a monthly assembly in the town hall, which was conducted with such decency, decorum, and politeness, that it drew the attention of the gentlemen and ladies in the neighbourhood, and a nobleman and his family continually honoured them with their presence. This naturally drew others, and in time the room was crowded with what the world calls good company, 
and the assembly prospered, till some of the newly admitted ladies took it into their heads that the tradesmen's daughters were unworthy of their notice, and therefore refused to join hands with them in the dance. This was complained of by the town ladies, and that complaint was resented by the country gentlemen, who, more pert than wise, publicly advertised that they would not dance with tradesmen's daughters. This the most eminent tradesmen considered as an insult on themselves, and being men of worth, and able to live independently, they in return advertised that they would give no credit out of their town, and desired all others to discharge their accounts. A general uneasiness ensued. Some writs were actually issued out, and much distress would have happened, had not my lord, who sided with no party, kindly interfered and composed the difference. The assembly, however, was ruined, and the families, I am told, are not friends yet, though this affair happened thirty years ago. End of section 12